Welcome back, Mainly fans, to part two of the Quebec Expedition with Tiffany Link. If for some reason you missed it, you should start with part one. Let's do this. So this this whole expedition, so they get up past the, the the plantations and the vacant spots. So do they? Yeah. Do they make it to Quebec? They do. do. They... Um, okay. I mean, things get pretty bad, but they do. Um, they reach the little set of three ponds, and things get get really awful at this point. There's about a hundred men who have turned around by now. They are have been kind of constantly wet. The frost is setting in. Their clothes are freezing overnight. Sometimes it's like as thick as a pane of glass, they say. And, you know, oh, so the it's, frost itself. Uh, like, no, they're clo- like the ice on their clothes. Oh, sorry, the ice. On yeah, okay. yeah. Because there, there's a lot of times where they're having to, they can't get the boats out of the water because the banks are too high, but mm. the boats are too heavy to avoid obstacles in the river. So they're having to like walk alongside the boats in the water to kind of guide them. And then sometimes like lift them up and over, you know, things that they couldn't float over themselves. So yeah, it's, it's awful. And then sometimes they are having to get out of the water and carry the boats. And every time they have to carry a boat, they have to make three trips because they carry this big bateau. Then they carry the food provisions and then they carry the military provisions. So like ammunition and guns and things like that, um, that all the, and then themselves are all in these boats when they're in the water. So they have to make three trips every time they reach a carrying spot. And it's three trips through some pretty unhospitable territory. And again, like they're not eating great. They're not eating like you should for this amount of physical activity in also really bad weather conditions. And so I gotta ask, is Benedict Arnold at this point, is he like Mr. Woodsman where he's doing okay? Yes. Yeah. Oh, he was. Okay. He's doing pretty well. Now, obviously he's probably got access to some of his own food stores. You know, he might have been a little more fit to begin with. In starvation situations, fatter people and women who tend to have a little bit more body fat percentage last longer. Men who are lean, people who are lean, muscular, they don't because again, your body needs those fat stores to help it process anything else it takes in and use in an appropriate way. So Arnold being a little wealthier, having access to more, he might've had, not saying he was fat, but you know, he might've just been in a better situation. Let the record say that's what you're saying. It's okay. <laughs> no, I really not because I have no evidence that he's in this, okay. like, you know, Henry Knox. Sure. But sure. Arnold, okay. you know, I don't have any evidence of that, but just based on his social standing and his access probably to better nutrition throughout, uh, you know, his life, mm-hmm. he might've been in a little bit better position to handle some of this, uh, than the other men. 
he's also kind of traveling back and forth between all the little divisions that are sort of spread out along the trail. And mostly he's at the front, but he's, he's kind of trying to stay with the main army, but he does kind of go up and encounter the riflemen divisions that are preparing the path. Um, Were there any horses pulling along supplies or with the officers riding or is this all people? It's pretty much all by boat. They do have oxen and I, they talk about the oxen a lot and, and, a couple of days from these three ponds, they eat the oxen. I don't know how they <laughs> made it that far. I, I think yeah, that's a mystery that to a lot incredible. of people. Right. And, but I don't think there may have been horses. I haven't encountered that in my reading of, okay. about it, but I just don't know that the terrain would have been conducive to that. I mean, the, the men are going up to their knees and sometimes their waist in these bogs, like, Again, I'm not really sure how the oxen are making it. Um, Henry Dearborn was on the expedition. He brought a Newfoundland dog with him. I mean, obviously the dog could ride in the boat, but you know, it's, it's interesting how some of this happened. But at this point, when they reach these three ponds, it's October 5th uh, around then. And Arnold really starts to think about the fact that things might not go well. And so he's starting to kind of- Oh, now it. he thinks about yeah. this. <laughs> yeah, and now, and now he's like, this really might end in failure and I need to m- start making some contingency plans. It's also right around now that they're encountering the men from the scouting party who are coming back uh, to these this three pond in the carrying place. And there's some good news. They're telling them that like, you know, you only have like 80 miles to go before you get to the- you know, the Chaudière pond and, you know, there it's not terrible. Like you can make it, we made it. So like, that's sort of good news, but they also see the state they're in. And kind of yeah. They're like human that skeletons. Can guess that. So that's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're the good news bears. <clears throat> right. And um, so Arnold at this point decides he needs to make a hospital. So they build a little log house near the second pond. He leaves the men who are too sick to continue there with some provisions. And the thought is that they'll stay there till they get better. And then they'll go back down the Kennebec River. He also tells Henry Dearborn to build a little depot and fill it with stores of food. And what he's trying to do is leave enough food at the depot so that if they have to turn around, it will be enough food to get them back down to the settlements near Skowhegan and Norridgewalk. Okay. But he wants to take enough food with him to reach Quebec. Or at least to reach the settlements outside of Quebec in the and also enough food that if they have to turn around, it will last them until they get back to this little depot that they're building. So he is mm-hmm. making these kind of contingency plans if if they aren't able to succeed. He also says at this point that the officers in the different divisions can call a council of war and have a vote. You know, if further down the line they think that they shouldn't keep continuing on and they can decide to turn around if they need to. That's very democratic. Very democratic. He might regret that later, but, um, you know. (laughs) Also about this time, back in Cambridge, Washington gets some news that the city of Quebec is almost completely unguarded. Most of the army has, has gone to Montreal, kind of as he was planning. They tell him that there's almost no possibility the French citizens will raise arms against the colonists. But again, they're not saying that they're going to help you, just <laughs> that they won't fight you. Well, that's better and... than him getting news that like Quebec ran out of food. Right. Or something. Yes. <laughs> right. And uh, but unfortunately, of course, there's no way to get this news to Arnold. So they, mm-hmm. they they're just wandering around in the wilderness. They don't know what's going on in Cambridge. They don't know what's going on in Montreal. They have no idea how Quebec is going to receive them. They're just cold and wet and hungry. 
and miles and miles from any kind <laughs> of reasonable assistance. And I'm guessing they're already starting to suffer from like, you know, we, we know from like World War One, you hear about trench foot and the kind of terrible. Yeah, I mean, they're losing their shoes, wet they, and cold all the time. Yes. Yeah, um, they, uh, they're getting dysentery, out. you know, like mm. um, it, it's not not a good scene. I think they've lost about 100 people at this point and dead you know uh no i think mostly just sick or turned around okay um because they were too ill to continue we, we haven't heard a, about a lot of deaths up to this stage I, I think one source that was kind of like counting the deaths said that joseph weston who had sort of ill-fatedly joined the expedition and turned around after getting sick and gone back to Skowhegan. I think he was considered like the second death of the expedition. Oh, that's pretty um, good by yeah. revolutionary war standards. I was yeah. surprised. Yeah, they're they're okay. doing well. Now, of course, we have the men who absconded with some of the provisions and we don't know what happened to them and mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. But for the most part, the army's staying together and there there are unhealthy people turning around or staying at these little hospitals that they've built and and that sort of thing. And so at this point, Arnold also decides he needs to kind of do a couple of admin things. So he sends a French speaking soldier and two native guides to go to Quebec. He gives them a letter to carry to one of his merchant friends and it tells them that they're coming. He inflates his numbers a little bit, but he also says, you know, can you kind of like start kind of getting the French citizen ready, citizenry ready to like potentially assist us or at least not resist us when we're attacking the city. He also wants them to kind of gauge the temperament of the Quebecois and see how they they feel about this impending liberation, let's call it. Mm -hmm. And he also sends word to the rear of the group to Enos and says, you need to start sending the rear elements of the expedition, like hurrying them along. And basically what you need to do is you need to start sending anyone that's able to travel like in good shape send them forward as long as you can supply them with 15 days worth of provisions. If you can't, or they're too sick, send them back, like send them back down to Kennebec. Don't let them go any further. Because what was happening is the advanced companies of riflemen who were further along than the great carrying place at this point, they were not doing well. They were doing the bulk of the labor, you know, like sort of this hard work of preparing the path. They were burning through their calories, burning through their rations. Primarily, it was uh, Daniel Morgan's rifleman, who's of later Revolutionary War fame, and a man named Christopher Green, not to be confused with the other uh, General Green. And they were really running out of food, running out of steam. And they didn't want to travel any further without getting provisions from the rear of the group um, because they were like, every day we go farther, we just get further away from the food. So right. they want to wait and it's going to take like four days to get the provisions up to them. And, and Arnold is very frustrated by this because he's like, this is just four days of waiting, doing nothing, not getting closer to Quebec, eating what little food you have left. It makes no sense, but there wasn't really like a whole lot they could do. I didn't realize he, they were so spread out at this point. They were pretty spread out. Well, and it also just takes so, I mean, you're moving so slowly, like I said, mm -hmm. you know, every time you carry a boat, you have to carry it three times, basically. So you're you're constantly backtracking and moving. So it's like one step forward, three steps back, you know, like as, as yeah. you're going along. So it just takes forever. And they do manage to get moving again, but there's just there's some really heavy rainfall. The river swells so much that it's like 12 feet higher in some places. 
than it was before. It floods about a mile inland. The tributaries are flooded. They're having a really hard time trying to figure out what the course of the river even is. And because it's flowing so hard in the opposite direction of how they want to go, they're having to put one man in the bow who can kind of grab branches and trees to pull the boat forward. And the other men are having to walk in the water beside the boat to kind of push it along and help it avoid obstacles that they can't see, which is not helping their already very tenuous situation. And I think yeah. this, you know, they lose five or six boats at this point. They lose all the provisions those boats are carrying. They lose all the ammunition those boats are carrying. They also start to discover that some of their uh, ration stores are no good. Some of it's because the water has seeped in and ruined like the flour or their crackers or the meat has been ruined maybe by the water, but they also think maybe some of it wasn't cured quite properly before it was stored in the barrels. So there's a lot of provisions they have that they just absolutely can't eat. <laughs> mm. And the fishing isn't very good up here. They do encounter some moose, but they're moving as this big army and the moose are able to get away before they can shoot them. So they're, they're just having a, a really, really rough time of it. And they've had no word from the advanced little groups that they sent to Canada. So they're starting to get worried about that. Arnold has to send another 75 men who are too sick to carry on backward. He sends about 50 men forward, hoping to reach the sort of settlements scattered throughout the province of Quebec that are closer to the route to maybe send back some food and provisions. They they have about 14 days worth left at this time, and it mm. will take them, he thinks in his optimistic mind, at least that long to get to these, these outskirts where they could resupply. So <laughs> they, they just keep trudging along. You know, Arnold is really struggling to get them to move. Um, he's struggling to provide for them. He kind of stays at the head of the company at this point to sort of see what's what's coming ahead. The rear division eventually catches up with Christopher Green and his riflemen. And e Enos says, we need to have a council of war and decide if we need to continue. And Green is like, we're absolutely continuing. I actually just got a letter from Arnold that says we need to hurry now more than ever. And Enos says, well, I have a letter from Arnold that says if I can't supply men with 15 days of rations, they're not supposed to continue. And I only have eight days of rations for my men, let alone now having to supply you, which was about like 150 extra people. Mm. And so they're totally split down the line. Enos's officers vote to go back. Green's vote to keep going forward. Enos says he'll side with Green, but his officers kind of just say like, no, we're unanimously turning around. And they do. And they take most of their provisions with them. They won't even really leave green with much so um, how many, to live on. How many soldiers go with the departers? I don't actually know. But I, I'm going to say this was like another hundred to couple hundred men based on how many are left once they actually reach Quebec, which is about 600. And we've already lost... Oh about you know 200 at this point um yeah, to turning so that's around a so sad sack size of force getting to quebec yeah yeah i mean less basically half of what yeah. you started out with so yeah they're probably one to 200 men um in this rear division and uh they just they turn around and go back and are not willing to share when really they can get back to the provision stores left at the hospital and the depot at the three ponds with relative ease. Whereas Green's men are going into the unknown and really could have used that food much more. And so they continue on. 
and they eventually get to the mountains. The groups that are ahead of them and getting over the mountains, they reach this really beautiful meadow and they're so happy to camp there. Um, they're relatively dry. They still don't have any food, but they're not like on horrible terrain anymore. There's no rain. A dog shows up out of nowhere and they decide to keep it with them because they might need it. And need to eat. Yeah. yeah. And uh <laughs> <laughs> and he, and sadly he does become one of three dogs consumed during this stage of the expedition. But but they're in a really bad state. They're, you know, eating candle wax like hair wax and kind of lip salve that they have with them, um, you know, shoe leather. They had made like moose legging, you know, pants. They were eating those as well. So yeah, the dog sounded pretty good. Mm -hmm. Although one of the dogs that was consumed, the men who ate it, they did leave some of it in a little bag tied to a tree for like the groups that were following after them. <laughs> so, wow. so they, they were being thoughtful they were being thoughtful um, yes yeah so how close uh, to the quebec are they now they are still probably about 70 miles from a settlement which oh my God. yeah which could have been traveled within a an, an hour or so they say if they had had boats but they didn't really have any boats left mm. and there weren't any boats coming over the mountain either because arnold once he had reached this point the meadow was great, but beyond the meadow was like a, another swampy bog um, before they would get to the lakes that would then lead to the St. Lawrence and allow them to get to Quebec with uh, relative ease. And so he sends word back to the men who are still in the process of crossing the mountains, which is primarily Green and Morgan, but a few others as well. And he says, don't take the brook and try to cross this this sort of what looks like a nice meadow area, stick close to the high ground along the mountains and then get over to this lake and it should really cut some time and effort off your route. Well, that is exactly the opposite. The bog and conditions along the height uh, of ground near the mountains was actually much, much worse. And to make matters even worse, when the men heard this news, they thought they wouldn't need their boats anymore. So they left them instead of carrying them over the mountain range. And, um, and had to go all that way on foot when they could have actually used the boats a bit and especially used them later and to, to reach the settlements more quickly. Um, Morgan's team actually does take their boats over the mountain because they have so much in the way of munition stores um, mm -hmm. that he thinks they'll need them. And so they're a little bit better off for a little while, but there's a set of waterfalls that they encounter and all of the boats are destroyed, like 10 boats and all of the munitions they're carrying. And then they still have all this way to walk and things are just looking really, really terrible at this point. <laughs> like, this, this whole thing um, feels extremely like depressing and futile. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's really awful. They, and so, yeah, sorry. <laughs> well, uh, so Washington and, and Henry Dearborn, who's Henry Dearborn is very sick at this point. And his dog has been eaten at this point. And um, oh. he, yes, uh, I, I think, you know, with somewhat with his consent. And um, yeah, he it, he's very, very ill, though, just due to the weather conditions and the lack of nourishment. And right around this point, he and Arnold look up and there are uh, men coming towards them from the little settlements uh, ar around the, the Chalier River. And they have carts of food and oxen and a horse and some, I think, goats and sheep. And, you know, they're, they're coming towards them with the purpose of supplying the army. Oh, that's nice. Because, you know, 
the uh, the messenger did get to Quebec. He did deliver his letter to Arnold's merchant friend who was sadly arrested and the letter was found, but uh, the messenger made it back. You know, he was able to kind of let everyone know what was happening. And so the Quebecois had kind of come out and were, you know, looking for the army and, and getting ready to supply them with provisions. And um, in addition, there were two indigenous gentlemen who were bringing some more stores on canoes and they very kindly got Henry Dearborn into their canoe and took him back into town. And he actually stayed for quite some time with a family member of a man who had joined the expedition near Fort Western and was able to recuperate. But he was so sick that he was not able to join the actual assault on Quebec. But while that was happening, word had gotten to Arnold and the army that he had died and that men had seen his casket being built and vice versa. Henry Dearborn was getting news that Arnold had taken the city and that everything was perfect. So I don't know where, how this miscommunication was uh, happening. High quality information but there, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah. And so in general, as the army is starting to very slowly filter in and the Quebecois kind of know like how dire their straits are, they're kind of gathering more provisions and they're heading out further and further to find these rear divisions of the army that are basically just straggling along. And all along the way, as, as these further back divisions are coming forward, they're just finding men who have basically like dropped off and given up the will to live. And sadly, before the provisions from the settlements are arriving, the men who are passing them with still enough strength to walk, there's nothing they can do for these people. You know, they can't mm -hmm. carry them. They don't have any food to give them. You know, they they just look at them and know that they're going to die probably. And there's one woman who's on the, well, that, I think there were four women actually who went on the expedition. And at least one of them was still with the expedition at this point, uh, a man, a man and a wife named Warner. And he had fallen back. And I think she maybe didn't realize it right away. And so she went back to find him and she did. And he died in her arms and she kind of buried him. And then she just grabbed his gun and, you know, whatever else she could and kept going. And, I mean, we should say the early modern armies at this point, having large numbers of women with them was pretty normal. Yes. Um, their armies could not have functioned without large numbers of civilian suppliers and, and others, many of whom were women, doing yeah. all, court, uh, all, all kinds of work and service. And so the idea of like an all-male army was very much a product of the 19th and 20th centuries, even though it, that was never fully achieved either. But like before, like during the American Revolution before, if you'd have said like, there should be no women with the army, everybody would have looked at you and been like, what are you talking about? Like, yeah, like what, who's going to wash our clothes? Yeah, who's going <laughs> to, right. And who's going to drive I mean, the wagons and who's going to like do all true. kinds of stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and probably more would have gone on this expedition if it hadn't been for knowing that it was going to be so difficult. And right. Um, but yes, the, at least four women, I think, started off in the beginning. Um, Mrs. Warner is the only one I know about in terms of any reference to sort of like how far she made it. But again, a little genealogy work. It's just something some historians don't do as much of. So, But you can find these things out. Like one of mm -hmm. the books I was reading said him and his unnamed wife uh, like went on the expedition and I was like well we can find her name and like in five minutes I was like there she is Susanna like <laughs> oh, you know like yes. just a little extra legwork and yeah. you know you can give a name to some of these people who kind of are in the shadows of of these larger stories so yeah 
Um, now you mentioned there's an assault on Quebec, so that implies yeah. an assault implies defenders. So who's defending? Yeah, Quebec? yeah. So uh, once they are getting among these settlements, um, they're getting replenished. I, I will just say quickly, like they do find the Quebecois in the little settlements around the city, like in the rural province, to be extremely friendly. They're super mm-hmm. welcoming. They even describe them as sort of like rejoicing that the army has appeared. It astonishes some of these people who really didn't expect such a warm welcome, you know, having fought a war against them, not really knowing what to expect from Catholics. And ah, yes. um, and and it's just the opposite. They're extremely generous, hospitable. They welcome them into their homes. They feed them. They nurse their sick. Um, and Getchell and Steele are kind of standing around and this indigenous man runs up to them and he just starts shaking their hand and talking to them like he knows them and saying how happy he is to see them. And they're like, who are you? And he, uh, he's, I'm Natanis. And they're like, what? And he's like, I'm Natanis. And I've been watching you this whole, the whole time you were on your scouting mission. He was like, I was there in the woods, making sure that nothing too bad happened to you. I'm the one who left the birch bark note to make sure you could find the right path. He was like, I, I, I am very supportive of this American cause. And, you know, I'm, I'm just glad that you've made it. And they're like, so pretending to be, so being a British spy was pretend. I don't know that that's true, but the men were pretty shocked and they said, why, why didn't you call out to us? Like, why didn't, I mean, they were like, really, you were making sure we were okay. We were practically, st- you know? <laughs> and so right. they were like, why didn't you call out to us? If we were, you know, considered your friends, like you let us know that you were there. And he said, well, I thought you would probably kill me. He wasn't wrong. Um, he wasn't wrong. <laughs> and I don't know what Natanis's motivations are. Again, you know, a little extra research might flesh his story out a little bit more, but my guess would be that he might have been a spy for the British, but he might have also been a spy for the Americans because when you're living on the main frontier, you're surviving. And yeah. so he might have been doing what suited him in the moment. And, you know, navigating survival on the main frontier is hard enough. But then when you throw in the fact that you're essentially on your own, sounds like he was living pretty solitary lifestyle and you're indigenous. And you're kind of in the middle of these two warring groups, you know, you're presented with a whole other set of obstacles that you kind of have to to choose the best way to to live through them pretty much. And so he might have been a British spy. He might have been siding with the Americans, like whatever was going to be best for him in the moment. You know, like I don't I don't know that he was or wasn't committed more to one side or the other, but <laughs> just kind of a you know, so now they know who left the little birch bark note. Um, I think they were a little mystified and surprised. Um, but his reaction to them was basically what the indigenous reaction to them was uh, once they were reaching these rural settlements. And they were also really yes. astonished to kind of see indigenous and French basically living together in these little communities and really sort of making it work. And so um, it was oh, a little yeah, culture. Yeah, had mm-hmm. a lot of that. Um, so anyway, so we're, we were talking about the defenders of Quebec. Of the Quebec, yeah. Quebec had defenders. Yes. As you mentioned. So So, who, who's actually there defending it? There are still British soldiers in the city. And before Governor Carleton had left to go help defend Montreal, he had also instituted an embargo. And his lieutenant governor, who took over after him, extended that through November. And at this point, I should say we are in like uh, 
first to second week of November, once they're reaching Quebec and starting to make plans to attack the city. And so the embargo was to keep merchant ships from leaving Quebec with the intention of potentially impressing their sailors into British service to defend the city, which didn't set very well with the merchants or with the inhabitants. Um, They couldn't sell their goods. They were under threat of impressment. It also meant that people from the countryside who would have been bringing fresh provisions into the city were hesitant to do so because they thought they might be impressed into service. And so it was creating theoretically a bit of a food shortage in, in Quebec that didn't really end up being the case. But that was somewhat what some of the intelligence was suggesting. But there, Arnold did get word that, you know, unfortunately, his friend had been captured, the note had been discovered. Um, Now Quebec was well aware that this was all happening. And um, there were also spies that they were encountering while most of the inhabitants were very supportive. There were spies that they were encountering now that they were among inhabitants. And they essentially found out that there were about 800 British soldiers who were able to defend the area at this point. And and was there were there fortifications around the city at this point? So the city itself, the northern part of it, at least is a, a walled city. So it's very well, very easy to defend it. And, you know, there's certain out like uh, posts along the wall, but like it, it's a hard city to attack in general. So they, the one thing they didn't quite have yet was like a major British ship, um, like a man of war or or a large uh, warship that could come and defend the city, which is what they really would have wanted. But being the time of year, they just couldn't get it through the waterways from Nova Scotia, which is where it would have had to come from. So, you know, they think there's about 800 soldiers in the city. Arnold has maybe at this point, like 600 men left, but they're not all fit for service. So he's really- And he didn't have any cannons with him. He did not have any cannons. Yes, that is a very good point. And, you know, they'd also lost so many of their military stores along the way as well through the boats sinking and and very low ammunition. So, and he also still has no idea what's going on with Schuyler and Montreal and um, General Montgomery, who's part of that expedition as well, even though things had actually been going pretty well for Montgomery. He had been taking a couple of cities. Montreal was surrounded and he had managed to get a couple of British ships and get their stores, like so food and clothing and things like that. But Arnold didn't know any of this at this point. Still, being brazen and being Benedict Arnold, he decides to cross the river and set up a little siege and demand their surrender. And they do not. (laughs) And they fire on them. Um, At this point, you know, he does hear about the 800 men. He kind of hears a rumor that there might be some ships on their way. And so he decides, I better back off and, you know, camp about 20 miles away and just wait it out for Montgomery at this point. And this is like mid, mid-November. And Montgomery finally gets there around December 1st. He's feeling great, very victorious. He's been having like a pretty easy river travel this whole way. Um, <laughs> so they're they're well fed, they're fit. He I think he also has about a thousand or so men with him, maybe. And and he's bringing clothes, like primarily he's bringing clothing because these men were approaching December in Quebec and their clothing is just tattered, like or sometimes they say they're naked, they have no shoes, like it, it is not a situation in which you can besiege a city. So um, he kind of reinforces them and they decide that 
they need to figure something out pretty quickly because enlistments are running out at the end of the year. And if they're going to do something, they need to do it fast. The weather impedes their progress a little bit. It takes them a little while to coordinate. And um, finally, it looks like on December 30th, they're going to get like a cover of a snowstorm um, and be able to do this kind of two-pronged attack on the city. And so Montgomery takes a little division and they actually start sawing through some of the wooden walls uh, of Quebec. And unfortunately, Mm -hmm. they saw right into like a a blockhouse and there are soldiers there and Montgomery is killed instantly. His two senior officers are also killed. Uh, Several others are very badly wounded. So they saw a hole into a just defended fort. Yeah. Where there are defenders on the other side who shoot them. Yes. All yeah, right. just okay. right off the bat. Um, wow. And it's extremely tragic because Montgomery was, I don't want to make it like super simplistic, but Montgomery was kind of like Arnold, but with better character. And uh. people kind of say that if he had survived, like he would have gone on to do wonderful things. And, you know, his name would be right up there with Washington and maybe even would have been our first president. You know, that that's how much sort of promise oh. he had shown in these early days of the war. And so um, extremely tragic, uh, you know, that this happened and his loss was was greatly lamented. And then Arnold's attack on, on the other side of the city, I think on the more northern side is where Arnold was, um, they did actually get through the gates somewhat undetected, but that just puts them in these narrow little city streets um, where there's high walls and high buildings around them. They're easily fired upon from above. You know, it's hard for them to gain any ground. Arnold himself is wounded again, very quickly. He gets a very bad wound in his leg. Um, he is carried off to safety, but the the small group of people that he has with him again, you know, by this point we can assume like maybe he was able to take 500 men with him, you know, like he had about 600 left, but again, not all were, service ready and they just end up surrendering and daniel morgan's uh, division is actually the last to surrender and all in all you know there's sort of differing accounts on numbers but they think that maybe 30 ish americans are killed uh, colonials forces are killed which doesn't really sound like a lot but you know considering they didn't have like that's 10 percent. <laughs> you know right. uh potentially so uh, about 30 were killed, 400-ish taken prisoner. So again, not excellent situation. And they think there were maybe about 30 British casualties uh, killed and wounded combined. But again, Arnold being Arnold thinks we can still besiege the city. I've got 600 men, and that includes what's left over from Montgomery's forces at this point. And you know, he's like, we're just going to set up camp. We're going to Kind of do what we're doing in Boston, just encircle the town and and see what happens because they but they didn't how have many enough dogs. Do they have left? That's <laughs> right. <really. laughs> um, and so they they do. They just set up camp. They can't attack. There's not really enough men, British soldiers in the city to attack them. Um, they also don't really need to. They figure they have you know enough food stores to last them through May, and by that point. You know, a ship can get there from Halifax and take care of these like this paltry group of 600 people that's, you know, trying to besiege the city. Word gets to Cambridge of what's happened, and they do try to send some reinforcements up to Canada, both men and provisions and munitions. 
but it's just not enough. Uh, they end up replacing Arnold, who's very wounded at this point in April. His leg just isn't healing correctly, and he doesn't want to cut it off. And so the wound is just continually festering, and it's not, it just won't heal up. It's it's too deep and infected. So he gets replaced in April by a man named General Wooster, and he is far less popular. Um, he also is not a live and let live kind of person when it comes to sort of the, the Quebecois and the Catholic population. He just um, has no time for them and really offends a lot of them, makes no friends. And he's somewhat quickly replaced by a man named General Thomas in May. And Thomas gets there and looks at the situation and is like, hard no and you know just orders a, a retreat basically I didn't and no i didn't head know back. that the the failed attack lasted as long as it did i didn't realize they hung around out there as yeah as i mean like i said arnold just couldn't let it go you know oh wow he was very confident that if they waited it out well i think the brazen side of him was very confident that if they waited it out they could they could get reinforcements and that they could potentially take the city in the spring. You know, I think realistically he had to know that that wasn't feasible. Well, and they'd come so far, you know, and they'd suffered so much to get there. Yeah. And understand yeah. too, that like, once you're there, it's hard to, to give up and admit it was all for nothing. Yeah. They had come. And so far, like you said, and I think when they got to the city, they probably were filled with like a mixture of like, look at what we managed to do. You know, like we didn't even know if this route was technically possible and we just took 600 people like over the wilds of Maine and into Canada. But then they're standing in front of a walled city thinking about what they have to try to do next and the state of their bodies and their ammunition and their supplies and the fact it's December, you know, like it had to be like a rush and a letdown all at once yeah so. so when they get back is this a are there recriminations is the i suppose there's both the popular and then the official reception of this right is there a sense that this was a mistake that should have never been made was this a tragic failure was this somebody's fault i don't think it really gets dwelt on hmm. a lot you know i think is that because the Americans are in a bad way throughout the rest of 1776 and they're losing so many battles elsewhere that the, the, the defeat outside of Quebec just is one of many? Yeah, I think in what from Washington's standpoint, especially, you know, he has a lot of other things happening. And so I think for him, it's like, OK, well skip it. Like what's next? You know, I, I don't know that he has a lot of time to dwell on it. And then by the time history has time to really reflect on it. Arnold's a traitor and it's a failed march through Maine with miserable conditions and no happy outcome. And so it, I, I think in general, it just kind of gets overlooked. Arnold himself on his way back from Quebec, I mean, he stays there and isn't in command anymore, but is trying to heal up and, and that sort of thing. And he ends up going back to Ticonderoga and is pursued by a small British fleet. And that's the Battle of Valcor, uh, sort of near the Albany area, like vaguely. And he, you know, manages to take a couple of British ships. He's well enough to manage the rear guard and kind of prevents any further progress from um, the British 
down the river they do end up taking lake champlain like control of the lake back over but he's he saves ticonderoga and crown point um from from being retaken at this point so i think in some ways he feels a little like his character is vindicated i think he also somewhat has a feeling that if he had been better supported he could have accomplished his goal you know i I, that's just his sort of his his character to um to to not make it entirely his fault were there any serious people with authority who later in the war said we should try again no i don't think i wouldn't say that i don't think that there was ever much thought of of attempting canada again no you know, I think by the end of 1776, probably even by the summer, by the declaration and the refusal of the Olive, Olive Branch petition, I think that there was no more thought that this would be a quick war. And there was no more thought that they needed Quebec for the bargaining chip. You know, there'd been some talk in the beginning about like bringing in Quebec and Canada, the Canadian provinces is like the 14th colony, but there just wasn't enough support there. They didn't like the British, but there wasn't enough motivation for them to rebel the way um, the 13 colonies had. They probably might've had better luck in the Nova Scotia regions. You know, there were, there was a lot kind of little skirmishes and ongoing battles um, in the area of like Machias sort of off and on throughout the war. Um, They had some indigenous support there among the Mi'kmaq and there was a little bit more of like a, well, there were more New England expats who had moved to right. uh, Nova yeah. Scotia. More sympathy, yeah. but also but among people who were willing to uh, to do something. Yes. <laughs> Whereas the French not to stereotype the French, but um the French in, in Canada just had um kind of not given up necessarily, but certainly weren't in the business of taking up arms to change their situation but i I think they would have been happy if someone else had changed it for them you know i don't think they were opposed i don't think they were opposed to that theory but for whatever reason they just weren't spurred to fighting and some of that might have been the education level you know one one remark that a lot of the people made was that there was very low literacy kind of very low knowledge in, in general of the world they use the word ignorant a lot but that's just sort of of the time mm-hmm. um, to kind of describe the rural provinces surrounding Quebec City, you know, very friendly, very amenable, but they just might not have really had a grasp of, of what it could potentially mean if they assisted um, the colonial cause the way more, you know, literacy rate in New England was almost mm-hmm. 100%. Like, um, you know, so the education level is just higher and understanding of what what they were trying to accomplish was just higher. And the British were kind of leaving the french canadians alone in a a way to uh, you know as it was said how the british uh, governed canada starting in the 1770s had they taken that approach uh you know and then and then after the war too but had the the british dealt with their protestant you know 13 colonies in the way that they dealt with the canadians Right, a little more hands off. A little more. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I don't know. It's 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 complicated because again, for the reasons we got into about the, I mean, the Massachusetts really did view itself as a peer of, say, York or or Devon, Mm -hmm. just a a province, and the the Quebecois did not, and there was no, there was never any real expectation that they would be. 
And no, so right, um, yeah. their, their demands were different, but their, their demands were then in some ways also easier to meet. Right. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's that. Yeah. I guess um, along, we did sort of when France came on board and uh, assisted the colonies, I, I guess our sort of handshake agreement was that we would continue fighting until the French provinces in Canada were free slash back yeah. under French control, not, not free the way the American colonies would be free, but we, uh, we obviously didn't, didn't really hold up that end yeah. of the bargain, but that, that and was French... sort of a, a part of the negotiation. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so... and I think the French, I think the, the, you know, the Louis the 16th, I mean, the French Canada was never a moneymaker in a serious way. It was about, it looked good on the map. This is why the French were willing to surrender it and set, turn it over in 1763 yeah. as, as long as they could keep their Caribbean possessions and then the the new the Newfoundland fishery which was economically lucrative and also had the advantage of being what all of the naval sailors did for their day jobs when they weren't fighting wars right and so if yeah. you didn't have a place where everybody could learn to sail and do things when they weren't being in the navy uh, when there was peace, you wouldn't have sailors in a war. And so right. <laughs> the French were very, uh, there's a really good book on this by the unfortunately named Jonathan Dull. Uh, <laughs> and it's called The French Navy and the Seven Years War. And he talks about how really the, the French cared far more about because they wanted revenge against the British. And so if you're going to beat the Brits, you need sailors. Uh, and so for them, the way to do that was to to hold on to the these these fisheries, which they there's islands off of Newfoundland that are still part of France today. Yeah, uh, yeah. a handful of them, and that's why originally a little legacy. Yeah, it's a, a legacy of all that. So thinking of these legacies and getting as we circle to to finish for for Maine and your uh, your purview, besides Fort Western uh, and those sorts of sites in Maine. People visiting the Maine Historical Society, both the archives and the um, and the uh, the museum, uh, is there anything in the holdings that Maine Historical Society has in relation to the Arnold or the Quebec expedition? Um, yes. So the most significant item that we have is what we call Arnold's letter book. And it contains letters that he wrote during the expedition, copies of letters, um, kind of a way to kind of keep your record of correspondence and um, both that he was sending to Cambridge and to Quebec and just uh, some notes about the expedition. It's not really his journal that's um, not with us, but in this letter book are also the notes made by John Montresor when he was traveling this region and he was an engineer working for the British army and he was tasked with surveying this route and seeing if it actually existed and was actually passable. And so he did that about like 1760 um, and made a, a map and then a journal of his uh, journey. And that journal went to England for safekeeping. And some copies were made, but the copies left out some place names. They left out sort of mileage between landmarks um, and that sort of thing for like a national security standpoint. And so we have one of those copies that Arnold carried with him during the expedition. So it has some of his notes in there um, along with these like tipped in letters that he uh, was keeping a record of the correspondence he was sending back and forth. So that's probably the most significant item, but we do have a couple of other letters 
some of them written by Getchell and family members uh, about the conditions along the route. We have uh, some surveying journals that were kept by men who surveyed portions of the route in earlier years, um, who then went on to serve with the expedition, one of them uh, by, uh, written by John Small. We also have some little artifacts like musket balls, some small cannonballs, like a swivel gun ball, but we kind of know they didn't really have like heavy artillery with them. And these are mostly just items that were found along the Kennebec or Dead River and sort of assumed to be from Arnold's expedition. You know, they're date appropriate, but uh, we don't always, we can't always say for sure, you know, but it, it's somewhat likely. One of them was found with a large cache of other items, uh, other military stores. So that one is, is a little more probable um, to have been from the expedition itself. So that's that. And I will say that there, if you want to um, visit other physical sites along the expedition, I mean, being as it's wilderness, so many of them are still there today. You know, the falls that they're crossing over, um, the towns of Skowhegan and Norridgewock. And there's a great book called Following Their Footsteps. And it will basically take you like step by step on this route to kind of a combination of canoeing and hiking and and some car driving you know uh, places that you can get to with a vehicle so it's pretty fun very cool and is there uh finally anything that you'd want to recommend that is going on at the main historical society that is collected or curated by you or one of somebody else on the elite team we've got working over there Sure. We, we just opened an exhibit, um, at, uh, last week that is called selections from the collections. And it is a selection of 13 items that our staff members chose. And I put together with a little bit of information about the item, as well as little information about why they were significant to the staff member that picked them. Um, so those are on display in our lecture hall. And then what is also, your choice? Oh, what is my choice? My choice um, is a view of Mount Washington from the Bridgeton Highlands, a painting. And it's a lovely view of Mount Washington, Captain Snow with snow over the highlands and some fall foliage still left in the trees. And I do a lot of hiking and have hiked Mount Washington myself. And um, you hike with a dog. But your I dog do. always makes it home with you. Yes. She does. Yeah. And um, my dog is pretty, she wouldn't make much of a meal. She's pretty small and pretty bony. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's no fat. So, um, But yeah, because yeah, it's like all of my favorite things, foliage, winter, and, um, you know, a, a view to a, a hike I'll never forget. So I, I picked that item. I came across the painting during a recent collection move and saw it. And I was just like, that's perfect. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Well, Tiffany, it is always great having you on to discuss all things revolutionary Maine. Indeed. Uh, yeah. And so hopefully we will uh, have you back on again. Thanks so Anytime. much. Yeah. Thank you. That's our show. Join us next time as we discuss what America's independence from the British Empire meant for New England women. In a new republic that celebrated the virtues of the independent citizen, what did that mean for women who, most of the time, were legally dependent on men?
though reality was often complicated and always interesting. That's next time on Mainly History. Thank you.